Back in the 1960s, there was a really precious couple by the name of uh, Edith and Francis Schaeffer. Some of you have read Francis's work, or maybe even the biography that, that Edith penned. It's a rather thick one, so if you're going to jump into it, be ready. Um, these two delightful people had a deep, deep passion. Francis was a graduate of a seminary and uh, had pastored for a little while, but I think pretty quickly discovered his gifting probably wasn't for ongoing pastoring, but he was a brilliant apologist. He loved to engage people like Nicodemus, who had questions. And so he set up a place called Labrie. It was in Switzerland, was the first one. And it was just a traveling place open for anyone who had questions and wanted to discuss Christ, wanted to discuss the scriptures. And, and they opened their home. And for, <laughs> Edith in her biography describes the day when the last dish from their wedding, you know, gifts was shattered. And she remembered, well, God, we have nothing from our past. It's all in the future. They were a precious couple. They spawned this Labrie Center, not just there in Switzerland, but I think there's today probably still somewhere in the vicinity of 12 around the world. Why? Because there are always going to be people like Nicodemus who come. And they have questions. One of my favorite theologians, Augustine, was just like that. He, probably like some of your children, was raised in a Christian home. And he, maybe like some of your children, kind of got to that point where it's like, I don't think I buy it. And he began to leave. He left home. And then he went on this exploratory season in his life where he was trying to figure out, what do I really believe? For a season, he believed that the that the gods of evil created the heavens and the earth. But one day, he was a, a teacher of rhetoric at various universities, and he came to Milan, and it was there that he encountered Bishop Ambrose. Ambrose was much like Jesus. He was never fluttered at all by a question. Not defensive. He just simply believed that the scriptures, if thoroughly examined, would hold up. And he believed that the life of Christ, if seriously considered, would hold up. I would say to those of you who have children who are questioning, don't be afraid of their investigation. Don't ever be afraid of their thorough examination of the scriptures. Because over time it has proven anyone who attempts to seriously question it, ultimately surrenders to it. Nicodemus did. Augustine did. Lewis did. McDowell did. Maybe today you will. Because when they come to Christ, and the scripture tells us that Nicodemus came at night. Now the popular view is is that he came at night because he was embarrassed. And he didn't want anyone to know. Let me just ask you a question. How many of you were born and raised in a small town. Raise your hand up boldly. A whole bunch of you. Can I ask you people? You're the experts. Is there any secrets in a small town? Thank you for the bold person back there. There is some elderly lady who is up at night or an elderly man or an inquisitive teenager. I guarantee you, I taught in a small town, Monroe, 500 people. There were no secrets in Monroe. 
I don't care if you did it at three in the morning. There were no secrets in a small town. The idea that he came because he didn't want to be seen, uh, candidly, I'd say slightly silly. Did he come for a reason? I think so. Those who came during the day were antagonists of Christ. Those who came during the day were accusing Christ. They actually wanted to kill him. Nicodemus was like all the seekers who came to Labrie, like Augustine, like Lewis. And he came at night because he didn't want to be associated with the antagonists. He actually genuinely wanted to know. Jesus, you talk a lot about the kingdom of God. But you talk about it in a way that is different than what was taught in rabbinical school. How does one genuinely enter into the kingdom of God? That's the question that he came. Jesus, how does one enter the kingdom of God? And where Jesus started was the first of many things that I think completely rocked Nicodemus's heart. Because the thing he opened with is not what this rabbinical trainer was expecting. There were 7,000 Pharisees that lived during the time of Christ, approximately. There were three or four groups of them. There were the Zealots, there were the Shammai, there were the Hillel, and, and this ruling class Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus was genuinely interested. The most talked about subject for Christ was the kingdom of God. And this rabbinical expert came to him and said, how is it? How do you say that a person enters? And Jesus looked at this individual and said, my dear friend, let me begin with what you need to know. Number one, who you are, and what you do is never going to be enough. It was shocking. Who you are, you're a Jew. And what you do, you're a Pharisee, is never, ever going to be enough. He says in verse 3, no one has ever seen the kingdom, or no one will see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Well, guarantee you that was a new language to him. He'd never heard the phrase. In fact, he comes back to Jesus. How on earth can a man be born again? What am I supposed to do? Jump back into my mother's womb? Impossible. <laughs> he says, uh, how can an old man, indication, I'm old. I, I can't be born again. He'd never heard that language. Jesus goes on and drives the home, this point, a little deeper when he says in verse 6, Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. Who are you? You're a Jew. The only thing you can do is produce Jewish children. Praise God. But flesh can only produce what flesh can do. That's all you can do. You can't produce a spiritual being. You can only produce what? A Jewish being. Flesh begets flesh. And by the way, yes, Nicodemus, you're religious. Ha, top of your class. 
probably 741 different rules that Nicodemus uh, honored. 741. He was the righteous of the righteous. And, and Jesus had addressed this earlier in his teaching. He came to his disciples. He was up there uh, on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And he was teaching in that little region. And he said to them, hey guys. He was talking to his disciples and, and a few others. And, and he said to them, hey, I just want you to know. Unless your life exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're never going to enter in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm guessing that Nicodemus heard this. That's the question. Well, if their life has to exceed my life, then his question is, how on earth do you get in the kingdom of heaven? I mean, is it 742 religious laws? He was a great Pharisee. To be quite honest with you, you would want him as your neighbor. Why? Well, because when you run out of sugar, he has it. When you run out of milk, he has it. He mows his lawn and he mows your lawn. He takes care of everything. This is a neighbor. This is the kind of person you want as a neighbor. He was amazing. But it's not enough. Because what you are and who you are is of the flesh. And it's never going to produce... Ever, he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. And if you're not born again, you're never going to see the kingdom of God. One of the challenges that Pharisees had is that they were really, really disciplined. You probably know somebody like this. Maybe you're this way. You set goals, you reach them. You set out, I'm going to read the Bible every day, and I'm going to read the Bible twice this year, and you do it. I'm going to rearrange my finances, and I'm going to honor God in my finances, and you kind of reestablish, and you don't give 10%, you give 12%, or maybe this year you're at 12, 20%, or whatever the case may be, and you're just one of those individuals, and you know them, maybe you're this person. You just have this amazing capacity to discipline your life. That was Nicodemus. You don't get to become a part of the ruling class without being a highly disciplined individual. And then Jesus looks him in the eye and says to him, it's not enough. And he says to all of his disciples, and this word gets out, unless you exceed the righteousness of Nicodemus, you're never going to see God. I had a good friend, Jimmy, who was pastoring in, in the Colorado area, used to pastor in Texas. And I said, Jimmy, what's the difference between pastoring in Texas and Colorado? And, and he said, oh, it's a great difference. The first is I don't have to convince people that they're not saved. I said, what? And he goes, yeah, in Texas, everyone thinks they're saved. And, and, and you ask him, and said, do you know Jesus Christ? Well, my, my grandpa was a Baptist pastor and my dad was a Baptist pastor and I lived next to a Methodist church. They had Methodist churches just to have cross-cultural experiences. And, uh, and so the fact is, is it's like he said, you, you literally had to help people understand that just because they were born in Texas doesn't mean God loves them. Because they're pretty convinced. 
And he said, it was our duty to help them understand that just because they have this great lineage doesn't mean they know God. When people tell us about the statistics today and all of the different, you know, uh, tests or, or polls that are taken, they tell us that 90 some percent of people believe in God. And because of that, I think the vast majority of them are very convinced that they're okay with God. I think if you asked a series of people, well over 90% of them would say they believe in Jesus. Do they believe he existed? Yes. Do they believe he died? Yes. Do they know something about the story of his resurrection? Yep. They believe. Does that mean they're saved? I'm not God, but I would suggest by the way they live, maybe not. Sometimes people believe because of their family lineage or because they were born in America. And there are people outside of America who think, uh, unless they watch the the TV show Dallas, um, then they think that everyone in America is a believer. We're a Christian nation, even people have suggested. And because of that, they come to the conclusion very much like Nicodemus. I'm a Jew. I'm a Pharisee, I'm a really good Pharisee, I'm a kind Pharisee. Carrie and I had a neighbor a number of years ago, and a Jewish family, and I asked him one day, I said, do you believe you're saved? And he looked at me like, saved? Saved from what? I'm a Jew. And I realized that then, I, I had no idea of their thinking. That's why Nicodemus was so puzzled when Jesus came to him and said, Nicodemus, who you are and what you do is never going to be enough. That blew his mind and it needs to blow yours. Because if you are one of those rare and wonderful individuals have the ability to self-discipline, your life may look just like Nicodemus. And Jesus, by the way, didn't condemn it, and neither do I. It is a marvelous gift to be disciplined. It's a marvelous gift to look at your finances and say, you know what, we want to give part to the church. It's a marvelous gift for you to say, you know what, I want to serve them. I want to be on the greeting team. I want to do all of these things. And you do all of them just like Nicodemus. And Jesus would look at you and say, who you are and what you do will not buy you a minute in the kingdom of heaven. And you might think like Nicodemus, well, then what does? Jesus goes on and says, the key to the life is a supernatural experience. Now, some of you are going to bristle a law to that word experience because you want truth. Well, let me show you experience. In reply, verse 3, Jesus declares, I tell you the truth, Nicodemus, No one's ever going to see the kingdom of God unless he is what? Born again. Nicodemus has never heard that phrase, ever. How do we know that? Because he responds, how can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asks, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus says, oh, Nicodemus, you knucklehead. And you call yourself a teacher. Oh, goodness sakes. The phrase, 
born again is correct. Another translation might, and I actually like it better. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born from above. You see, the key to the supernatural experience in life has to come from outside of you. It can't come from your discipline. It can't come from your knowledge. It can't come from your lineage. It can't come from attending this great church. It has to come outside from you. You must be born from above. Oh, verse 8, follow with me. And, and then he goes on and, and Jesus says to him, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell when it comes from where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. If Pharisees lived for anything, they lived for ritual and tradition. And Jesus comes to them and says, Nicodemus, when you encounter God, don't try to make it a templated cookie cutter experience. The spirit of God is going to come and sometimes he's going to come in unique ways. When he came to Augustine, he came through a gentle and profound bishop that engaged him in questions. When he came to C.S. Lewis, a brilliant mind, C.S. Lewis says, I left my home driving to the zoo and I left my home not a believer in Christ. By the time I got to the zoo, I was a believer in Christ. It was not a warm feeling like John Wesley. It was not some radical experience. I, I wondered what animal was it that caused him to believe? that he was so afraid of. I think it was the monkeys. <laughs> I don't know. But Lewis says, I left my home, not a believer. And by the time I got to the zoo, I had placed my faith in Christ. You see, the experience that we have, Paul was walking along on his commission, he believed from God, to do what? To eradicate the way. Those who would one day soon be called Christians. And on his way, he had this encounter, this divine encounter with the Holy Spirit, with Christ. And Christ spoke to him and, and had a question, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was blinded. Now, most of you didn't get blinded when you came to Christ, but I guarantee you, every one of you had an experience. You have to. It is an experience that comes outside of you, the scripture says. This person is born from above. They have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. You don't get saved in your mind. You get saved when the Holy Spirit, John 16, comes and convicts you of sin and righteousness and judgment. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you have this moment, oh, it might be like John Wesley where you have this divine warmth that comes over you. Or you might have this moment like the Apostle Paul who has this divine encounter with God. Mine was 1.12 in the morning. My good friend Jim woke me up. We were camping. He was one of my teachers. 
And he comes and he rustles my shoulder and picks me up and he said, hey, Hanky, didn't know my first name. Hanky, let's go for a walk. Dort, it's 1.12 in the morning. What are you doing? I need to ask you a question. How much longer are you going to run from God? That's all he asked me. I think I'd wrecked my fifth automobile. I believed in God. I could tell you the story. I knew the gospel. I just never surrendered. And it was in that moment at 112 that night as I was walking with Jim, I just said to him, I think I'm done. I think I'm done running. I think I'm done. I'm tired. I'm broke. I've wrecked too many cars. I think I'm done. And when Jesus comes to you, he says to you like he did to me. It's not enough that you went to church. It's not enough that you know the Bible pretty well. It's not enough that you and you, whatever listed is Nicodemus, it's not enough. If you want to enter into the kingdom of God, you have to have an encounter, a divine experience. In order to be a part of God's kingdom, you have to have a supernatural, born from above experience. You don't walk your way into the kingdom through your acquisition of knowledge. You come into the kingdom when you're what? You have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes to you. And some of you, the Holy Spirit came to you in your dorm room. And some of you, the Holy Spirit came to you when maybe Reed was preaching at campus. And some of you, the Holy Spirit is coming to today because you realize I'm an extremely religious, disciplined person. I was raised in a Christian family. I have really, really good parents. They taught me all about the Bible and my behavior has conformed to the expectations. But you realize as you're looking upon over the shoulder of Nicodemus, you're just like him. You've never had that moment where the Holy Spirit came upon you and you were born from above. Now the question is not in the text directly, but the answer is, and so I know he asked the question. And the question is simply, Jesus, what does it mean to believe What does it mean to believe in you? Because Jesus came back and said, hey, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And here's a guy who was an expert at disciplining his life. He was an expert at religion. And Jesus was coming to him, asking him things he'd never heard of, born from above, believe, believe, he believed. He believed God. He believed God was going to send the Messiah. Jesus comes to him and says, Nicodemus, God so loved you that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall never perish. 
And I know Nicodemus asked him the question because Jesus gave him the answer. What does it mean to believe? Salvation, he says to Nicodemus, and he says to you, comes only from relationship, not religion. Nicodemus, you're never going to get into the kingdom of God by your great religion. You are going to get into the kingdom of God through a relationship. And he takes him back to a story that he would know. He says, Nicodemus, do you remember when Moses was leading the nation of Israel out of Egypt? Yes, I do. And do you remember the season in their life when they were getting bitten by all those snakes and they were dying? Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Do you remember what God told Moses to do? Yeah, I remember Jesus. He told him to get a staff and to put a snake on the top of it. And whenever somebody got bitten by a snake, they were to lift that rod up, that staff up. And if they would look to the staff, they would be healed. Yeah. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, verse 14, Nicodemus, so the son of man is going to be lifted up on a cross. And everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, what does it mean to believe? Do you remember what the nation of Israel had to do? They came and they were frothing out of the mouth and they were feeling the cramps of poison in their stomach. And Moses said, if you will look up and look and gaze at the gift that God has given to me, you will be healed. And one after another came and looked up and looked at that snake and they were healed. Nicodemus is the same with you. If you will look up to that cross, to the one hanging on it, you will be healed. If you believe that his death is for you, if you will believe that his life is for you, if you will believe that he is sent from God for you and you will look up to the cross, my friend, in that moment, you will be healed. Now, I think the Israelites had a decided advantage. And here's what it was. When poison enters into your bloodstream, you feel it. You begin to cramp. You begin to convulse. And so they could sit at home and go, well, you know, I'll, I'll trust the snake when I want to get around to it. Let me explore. Let me go have some sex outside of marriage. Let me go, you know, get high on weed. I'll get around. I believe in God. I'll come back to Jesus. I'll come back to the church. They had a decided advantage because the poison made them face what? The terminalness of their life. Friends, listen carefully. I want to give you some poison that you better be aware of. There's an incident going on in Israel today. I'm not a prophet, but like you, I've been reading the Bible, asking the question, is this the holy war? It's described in Psalm 83. There are six characteristics of this war. From my best understanding, five of the six 
have been checked off completely. The only thing left is if Iran, Syria, and Lebanon enter into this fiasco. And if one of them enters in, I'm not here to tell you I know Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I'm just here to tell you. If you read the scriptures and you look at the leaves on the trees, that prophecy that was given in Psalm 83 was not delivered to us in 1948. It was not delivered to us in 1973. If you go through and you look at the six different characteristics, you will understand that none of them fully were met in those earlier years. But today, as best I understand it, they're all met, save one. The reason I tell you this is not to try and predict and not try and be jumping into that realm of saying, I know when Christ is going to come back. What I am here to tell you is that as we look at the happenings of the world, you may not have a lot of time left. And if you're dinking around with Jesus and pushing him off, I dare say, friends, today's the day. I hope it is the case. I told my wife I'm not sure I'm going to pay my taxes this year. <laughs> this is going to go on the recording and somebody's going to come back 10 years from now and say, eh, stone the guy. As I look at it, what you don't have is the frothing coming out of your mouth, the poison that forced the nation of Israel to say, look to the rod. But what Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says to you and me, you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Look to the cross. You want to feel the urge of the Holy Spirit, John 16, in you? Read Psalm 83. You want to feel the urgency of the potential return of Christ? Read the scriptures. Read Matthew 24. Read Psalm 83. Look at the news and just ask yourself the question. Have we checked them off? Might this be the very season where Christ says, I'm going for my church. And if it is, I say to you, don't trust your good discipline. Don't trust pushing off. Today is the day that Christ says, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so today we lift up Christ that if you believe in him. What did it mean to believe in the snake? To trust it. To understand that it's through God's gift that I might live. What does it mean to believe in Christ? To trust him. And to understand and believe that when you receive his gift, it will cause a new birth and it will bring you into a new life. Nicodemus, 
came to Jesus at night. I'll let you decide the motive. He came as a seeker. He left as a follower. I think some of you today came as a seeker. Maybe you're a seeker with questions or maybe you're an intensely religious person with great discipline. And I would say to you, if you look to Christ, you can have the assurance that you will spend eternity with him and never perish.